Brothers and sisters, hear the good news. The arrogance of man leads to sin, and sin leads man into isolation and desolation, away from God and away from each other. Adam sinned and was cast out of the garden. Cain defied God, murdered his brother, and was sent out of Eden. The people of Noah's generation were wiped off the earth because of their love of violence, and men who wanted to build a tower to God to make a name for themselves were scattered across the whole earth. But God our Father was merciful to us, sent to us his only begotten Son. He would be murdered by his brethren under false pretenses. His kingdom message would be heard and rejected, and he would be the perfect and innocent scapegoat cast out of the city. The culmination of generations of sin was heaped upon Jesus at his death, where the very Son of God was forsaken by the Father. Yet in his death, in his resurrection and ascension and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit, Jesus is remaking the world, a new world characterized by his love, faithfulness, grace, and mercy. And he has brought you into it. He has brought you into himself. In Christ, you are no longer scattered and isolated. In Christ, you are no longer condemned for judgment. In Christ, you are no longer brotherless. In Christ, we have now been brought into a blessed family and into the city of God. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. Hear the word of the Lord. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the Holy Spirit, Holy City, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, and as a stone of crystal clear jasper, it had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square and its length is as great as the width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. And the material of the wall was jasper and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. 
And I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And in the daytime, for there shall be no night there, its gates shall never be closed. And they shall bring the glory and the, and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his bondservants shall serve him. And he shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. We'll turn now to Genesis chapter 2. beginning in verse 7. Then Yahweh God formed man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And Yahweh God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground Yahweh God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. The bdellium and the onyx stone are there. And the name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. Then then Yahweh God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. And Yahweh God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. And Yahweh God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. Last week, when I was done, my wife said, What bee got into your bonnet? 
because of that, I suppose, three different men came and warned me. Craig, don't be wild today. There are flowers behind you. Let's bow in prayer. Father, we are grateful that we can come into the holy place through the blood of Christ by a new and a living way which he inaugurated for us through his flesh that is the veil. And we thank you for the cleansing that admits us into your presence. And now we want to hear your word. We ask you to graciously speak to us and grow us up in Christ. This we pray for his glory. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, when it comes to the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, John likes to remind us of this verse. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. It is that typical Hebraism of putting two words together for emphasis, dying you will die, desiring I desire. The Song of Solomon is all about desire. The Song of Solomon is a difficult book to interpret and to understand. And given our sex-crazed culture and our uh, what's the word I want? Our insistence upon literalism, we far fall, we fall far short of understanding the book. And most of us probably don't spend time reading it and thinking about it unless you're doing a Bible program and you run through it. I had a theology professor named Craig Glickman who wrote a book called A Song for Lovers. It is an attempt at the book of Song of Solomon with a literal interpretation and trying to follow the different poetic vignettes and find a story and a meaning. The church in the past and uh, Judaism way past have also struggled with the book of Song of Solomon. And there are four ways people look at it. First is literal, and of course it's a little hard to get around that. But if you just look at it literally, that doesn't get you anywhere. 
The second way to look at it is allegorically, as an allegory. And uh, of course, those who are literalists accuse uh, certain other sectors of the church of being allegorists. And Paul has an allegory in Galatians chapter 4. So allegory is in the Bible. And when Jesus gives many of his parables, they are allegorical. The third way to look at it is tropologically. And that is when you take the allegory, say you take a, a, par a parable and uh, you come to allegorize it and then you try to find where you fit in it, how it applies to you. That's what tropological is. And of course, we do that when we read the scriptures. The fourth way people look at it is analogical or eschatological. That is, how does this work in the future? Is it, is it prophetic in some fashion? And all of these are true. And Jesus makes it clear in Luke 24 that all the scriptures talk about him. So the question is, can you find Jesus in the Song of Solomon? Song of Solomon is uh, meaning that Solomon wrote the song himself. He wrote, uh, if I remember correctly, 1,005 songs. So this is one that is recorded for us. And it's interesting. And we probably don't like to talk about it in public so much, but it is the Word of God, and we're not going to talk about it that much this morning, so, you know, don't get embarrassed. There are some movements in the Song of Solomon that have to do with what we've been up to, and it's to those movements I want to go, but first I want to kind of bring you a, a little bit of review because I'm sure you're lost, and I might be lost also. Well, we started out on the 29th of May thinking about the fact that Pentecost was coming in a week and the elders were looking to move from unleavened bread to leavened bread. And so we talked about leavened bread in a fashion. And we said, well, there is no actual commandment to have unleavened bread or to have leavened bread. But of course, in Luke 22, where Jesus earnestly desires to eat the Passover with the disciples, they had unleavened bread because it was the feast of unleavened bread. But the first this is the, the, the Last Supper. And then comes the First Lord's Supper. And the First Lord's Supper comes, as we saw last week, in Acts chapter 2. After the church was added to by 3,000 souls, those who had received the word of Peter and had been baptized were added to their number and they were all together. 
devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, the Lord's table, and prayer, and a fear came upon them. Not a fear like, I'm afraid. The New American Standard translates it awe, and that might be the way one might want to translate it, or revere. But you read the end then in uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, down to the end of the chapter, and you see that these people were so uh, changed and full of joy because they had received the gift of the Spirit and they were willing to part with their possessions. If anybody had need, they would sell them and give them to them. And they were daily in the temple praising God and moving from house to house, breaking bread, having the Lord's Supper, and taking their meals together. And God, at the end of the chapter, says, was adding to their number those who were being saved. So it was just this continual growth. So we said, well, there's no commandment to have unleavened bread. And when you move to the day of Pentecost, of course, there is no unleavened bread. At Pentecost, you put leaven into stuff. And so we were also thinking, well, the day of Pentecost looks back to the giving of the law, which was given to Israel on the 70th day after, or 50th day after, after Passover, 70th, sorry. And, and uh, now the law and the covenant with the law, the first covenant, the author of the Hebrews tells us, is obsolete, and what's obsolete is passing away. But what has come is a new covenant. And the focus of the new covenant is on the gift of the Spirit and the forgiveness of sins. And we looked at Luke chapter 13, I didn't want to get tied up in Matthew chapter 13 with all those parables, but Luke chapter 13, and we saw that Jesus likened the kingdom of God to uh, three measures of uh, grain or flour, about a bushel of flour, and a woman put into it Leaven, and the whole was leavened. And I suggested to you that despite what many people have said over the past hundred years about leaven, in this context, leaven is positive. It is not negative. It's not that the three measures are going downhill. The three measures are filling out into this kingdom. So, we suggested the idea that leaven, well, Jesus told his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees, beware of the leaven of Herod. And they discovered what he was talking about was their teaching. 
So if you take teaching that's bad and you put it over here and you say that's leaven and don't use that leaven, then over here there has to be teaching that's good and it's leaven. And it's put in and this is the way the kingdom of God grows. I want to suggest to you that that leaven that Jesus talks about is nothing less than the Holy Spirit. Now, not directly, but indirectly. That is, the Holy Spirit is given to believers and to the church. And the church goes out teaching and this measure of wheat just grows and grows and grows and grows until it's all leavened. So that when we come to the table, we are not looking at the table quite like the Passover, where leaven represented something we were leaving behind, so we cut it out and we have unleavened bread. But now we're looking at the new covenant that has put the past behind us in the death of Christ. And now we're looking forward into the future and the Spirit is working in the people of God so that the kingdom is being leavened and in the end it will all be leavened. Last week we came back on the day of Pentecost and we looked at uh, Acts chapter 2 and we discovered that on the day of Pentecost another element that comes up on our table, bread, leavened bread, came up in Acts chapter 2. And it was wine. And uh, just as at Mount Sinai there was fire up there and this wind and thunder and lightning, so on the day of Pentecost came this rushing wind spirit and the Spirit lighted on the apostles in tongues of fire, and they began praising God for all of his marvelous works, and people were hearing in various kinds of languages. And these languages were from the scattered Jewish people who had been scattered way back in Babylon, and then into Persia, and Greece, and into Rome. And now they're all here on the day of Pentecost, and they're hearing this, and they cannot understand what does this mean. And of course, it's the undoing of the Tower of Babel. And so, some of them say, well, these men are just full of sweet wine. In other words, they're drunk. And Peter says, no, that cannot be the case. It's too early in the morning. But what you see is what Joel promised. I'm going to pour out my spirit. And we looked at that, and we saw, oh, yeah, so the spirit came, and the work of the spirit, well, really is like wine, but different than wine. So when somebody drinks too much wine, they're carried in directions that they would not otherwise go. 
And when someone is filled up with the Spirit, they too are taken over. One is for unsavedness, and one is for savedness. And we saw in Ephesians that this manifests itself in three ways. Singing, the word really is psalming. Second, being thankful for all things. And then thirdly, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. And so we went there to see that when the Spirit comes, he overtakes a life. He, he, he owns us. We don't have the right to say, okay, uh, uh, this is what I'm going to do, even though God says, no, he, he's our master. He owns us. We looked at that. And that compelled me, probably not you, in the book of Ephesians to look at two bookends because I've also been wanting to talk about what's happening in our culture and in the church. And so one of the signs that the Spirit has overtaken somebody, filled them up, is that they submit to one another in the fear of Christ. And we noted in Ephesians that when you get down to the end of chapter 5, you see the word fear again. So, submitting to one another in the fear of Christ, wives, be submissive to your own husbands as to the Lord. And then we get down to the end, and it says, likewise, you wives, uh, to respect, fear your husbands. And that opened up the door for me then to talk about women, one of my favorite topics, because of my wife. And so we moved into the book of 1 Timothy, and we saw in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 2 where Paul is calling the church to pray and he devotes the first half of the chapter to the idea of prayer, and he gives four different words for prayer, and because God wants all kinds of people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, because there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. And then he moves on to the application of that, and for reasons... Maybe we can't fully tell. He says, okay, now, when you gather in every place, what marks men is prayer. What marks women is cosmetics, adornment. The word from which we get the word world, this beautiful world that God has created. And then he created in the pinnacle of his creation women as the last part of the creation, beautiful, and women use cosmetics to adorn themselves, but he changes it on them. Not the braiding of hair and that kind of stuff, but good works. Which moved us then into the end of the chapter, verses 11 through 15, where he said, now, I don't, I don't allow a woman to exercise authority over a man, and I don't allow a woman to teach, but women are to be quiet, and we said quiet is not talking about the voice. Instead, it's talking about being at peace in one's spirit, quiet and tranquil, learning 
in all submissiveness. Well, of course, men are supposed to learn in all submissiveness, too. Sometimes we forget that, and so we think somehow there's this big divide between men and women. It's not so. But then he, he says that, that this is the way it's going to be because Adam was created first, then Eve, and because Adam didn't fall into the transgression, but the woman, being quite deceived, fell into the transgression. Well, now, you are just getting my way of thinking here, which is going to move us in just a minute to the Song of Solomon and then back out to the Lord's table. So, <clears throat> when you start speaking about Adam and Eve, where does it put you? It puts you right back in the garden. But before we go to that garden, Paul says, but women shall be saved through childbearing if they, the women, continue in faith, love, sanctity, that is holiness and self-control. And that's kind of where we ended. And of course, that's not what our culture is up to. And that's not the way a large section of the church thinks today. And it's because they don't think like they're in a garden and they've been placed there to get something done. But of course, Adam was placed in a garden and he was told exactly what to do. And then he was given a helper suitable to him, corresponding to them. That is, they fit together and they make one body. And they have this task of uh, being fruitful and multiplying and shoving people down the four rivers all over the earth. That task has not exactly ended. And so I chose for the scripture reading where we read from Genesis and then we went all the way to the end of the Bible and we read from Revelation. And over here you have the Garden of Eden with two trees in it. And over here you have the New Jerusalem, the bride. And lots of trees in it. The tree of life shooting up everywhere. And so you can see that you're moving from one to the other. And so I want to make this comment. When Eve was formed out of Adam and brought to Adam, she became part of the garden. And Adam was in charge of the garden. And he was in charge of Eve. She was his helper. But she also is a garden. We're going to see that in Song of Solomon. She's a garden. And so he's supposed to work in the garden, and then he's got this wife who's a garden, and he's supposed to, you know, grow things, pick fruit, produce. And the implication is, well, in fact, God says it. She's supposed to produce. All for the purpose of spreading the Garden of Eden downstream all around so, so earth begins to look like heaven. Of course, sin came and it disrupted things. And we're not, we're not going to talk about sin. But then when you get down to Revelation, 
you have this huge mountain, and, and mind you, it is a symbol. It is not literal. I don't think at the end of time, heaven's going to come down and we're going to walk on streets of gold. I suppose it's possible, but this city is called the wife of the lamb. So over here you have Adam, he's in a garden, and Adam's in the garden, and he gets a wife, and so Adam and his wife work the garden, and she's part of the garden, and so the garden's fruitful, and Adam's wife is fruitful. Now we get down to the end of time when all things are going to be made new, and you have, just like Eden's up on a mountain, now you have this mountain, and the city comes down over it, so you're, you're moving uh, from agrarian to city, and you look at that city, and it's got the tree of life in it, and it's got a river in it, and it has fruit in it, and it's called the wife of the lamb. She's part of it. She is it. And the implication is, okay, over here, Adam failed. Over here, the second Adam, the last Adam, he came to the fight, and he prevailed. And his garden, his wife, is mega productive. And so the water of life runs down, and along the water of life grows up trees that bear fruit every 12 months. And it has leaves that are for the healing of the nations. So what's happening is you have these rivers coming down and all this stuff is shooting out to the nations. But it's a garden city. Now turn, if you would, to Song of Solomon. Let's see if we can make something of this. When I'm done today, you might be more lost than ever. Take courage, though. This is it. Next week, Caleb's up with two or three lessons on James. I don't know how long that's going to go. And when I come back, we're going to finish off Chronicles. Okay. Song of Solomon, chapter 1. Sometimes called canticles. Canticles is just a word that means song. A Latin word that means song. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. For your love is better than wine. Your oils have a pleasing fragrance. Your name is like purified oil. Therefore, the maidens love you. Draw me after you and let us, let us run I can't read that word. Uh, uh, and the king has brought me into his chambers. We will rejoice in you and be glad. We will extol your love for it is better than wine. Rightly do they love you. This is a song, and, and all, all of, all of uh, Song of Solomon is a, a poem 
a song, and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's erotic. And it's written very, very carefully because Solomon's not a crude man. And he is telling about himself and about the Shulamite woman who loves him. And she says, Oh, I wish he'd kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. His love is better than wine. Ah, it's repeated. Your love is better than wine. Rightly do the maidens love you. Okay, so there's a comparison being made that we've already seen with the Holy Spirit. But now it's a king and it's the king's wife. And he is comparing kissing in the sense that one would be drinking wine, but it's a comparison and it's a contrast. And so wine uh, inflames people. People drink wine because it makes them feel good. But she says, no, that's nothing. This is better than wine. Now, what I want you to notice, you have to, you have to give some thought to this. They're coming together, and the idea is they kiss. And this kiss is intoxicating. She wants it. Once you move further down in the book, you discover that the king uh, drinks her wine. And she says, oh, your oils are pleasing fragrance. The word for fragrance in Hebrew is ruach. The word for spirit in Hebrew is ruach. You hear a difference? Not much of one, because a pun is being made. And this pun is being made to teach us something. And we're talking about a king, and we're talking about his bride. And we're talking about a king that most people would say, well, the king is Solomon on the literal sense. Yahweh God with his wife Israel on the allegorical sense. And Jesus Christ and his bride, the church, on the analogical sense. I think they're right. So something is being displayed about how we relate to Christ and how Christ relates to us. And it's pictured around fragrance and around drink. Turn to chapter... Chapter 
5. And uh, we won't read it, but you'll notice down at the end of chapter 4, she has a garden. So, whereas Eve's brought into the garden and becomes part of the garden, and Adam's supposed to cultivate the garden, cultivate her. So, this woman is a garden, and the king is supposed to cultivate his garden and cultivate her. And so, it says in chapter 5, verse 1, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have uh, gathered my myrrh along with my balsam. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have uh, drunk my wine and my milk. Eat, friends, drink, and get drunk, O lovers. But of course, it's not about getting drunk with wine. It's about getting possessed with love. So on the literal level, two people come together in a kiss. Kids, you've seen your parents kiss, right? So I can talk about this. People come together in a kiss. And what are they doing? They're eating. They're drinking. It's a metaphor. Just like you got a little kid, and you start kissing all over the kid, I'm going to gobble you up. What are you saying? I'm eating you. That's, that's what this is. And you come to this table, and Jesus says, I, I've desired. I, I want this. Why? Because Jesus desires you. That's why. He invites you to the table where you eat him and he eats you. Well, of course, it's a symbol. But symbols help us think, help us realize. You know, when we come to this table, when we're at this table and we are there through the Spirit with Christ, He wants us. So He should. Why would He pick us for His bride if He didn't want us? And when we come, we're like the Shulamite woman. We want Him. How's that expressed? Well, it's expressed in singing praises, worship, prayers. It's a husband and a wife eating each other. Now, that's not the end of it. So turn over to chapter 7. There's a, there's a, uh, there's a poetic... There, there, there's names for different poetic stuff, and I, I'm just learning some of this. So two, two terms that, well, they've been come to, new to me over the past maybe, maybe eight years. And 
in, in this poem, uh, there are uh, three times this is done. It's called a, a wasith or a blaisong. And what you do is you, you look at somebody and you admire them. In this case, it's a husband and a wife. And the husband first admires his wife from the top of her head down to her feet. And then the second case, he admire, admires his wife from her feet up to the top of her head. And in chapter 5, the woman admires her husband. And in chapter 7, we have this statement where he's looking at his wife. And, you know, he's just being honest. He's looking at her and he says, you know, you kind of look like a palm tree. Gents, try that on your wife. And he says, so I'm going to climb up the palm tree, and I'm going to get its fruit. I mean, he, he says it. We're not going to read all that. And uh, then down just a second here. Down in, uh, let's look at verse 9. No, let's not look at verse 9. I'm in the wrong chapter, that's why. I have a copy of Song of Solomon that uh, is smashed, and that is no pun. Chapter 7, it says, your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters. I said, I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its clusters. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of a vine. Notice we're in garden imagery now. She has a garden. He's the king. And the fragrance of your breath like apples. The word breath is the word nose. The fragrance of your nose like apples. And your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, flowing gently through the lips of those who fall asleep. Now, that, that's a poem. So, in the beginning, she wants his wine. In the end, she gives him wine. In the beginning, she says, oh, your, your fragrance is quite something. In the end, she, he smells her fragrance. And so, I'm going to give you the picture now. They come together. Kids, you've seen your parents kiss. They kiss, and they're sharing breath. 
and they've brushed their teeth so it's fragrant and it's a pun on the word spirit when we come to the table and we praise god what is flowing out of us is spirit when god comes to us at the table and joins us what is flowing from him to us is spirit the holy spirit this is the picture this is what happens this is two people sharing life and it takes you right back to the garden and in the garden God breathed into Adam's nostril and he became a living being. And in Song of Solomon, there's the sharing of breath and their life is invigorated with spirit. And it's pictured in terms of kissing, which is eating. And here we're going to come to the table in a little bit. And we're going to eat bread and we're going to drink wine, and this bread that we're going to eat is leavened. It's potent. And this wine that we're going to drink, well, there's grape juice and wine, but just excuse that for a minute. This wine is potent. It's spirit. Well, it's just wine, but it's a, it's a picture to show the closeness the intimacy between Jesus Christ and his bride. All of us here, we're not individually the bride of Christ. We are corporately the bride of Christ. And he comes to feed us. And we come to eat. He comes because he loves us. He comes because he desires us. We come because we love Him. We come because we desire Him. That's what happens at this table. It's not just some little ritual we go to. It's like a husband and a wife who sit down across from each other at a table. They look each other in the eyeball and they enjoy dinner together. He wants to be with her. She wants to be with him. This is love. This is what happens at this table. Now, can you see it? No, you can't see it. Can you hear it? Yeah, you can hear it. When we sing it out, when we praise loudly, when we sing songs about how great our God is and how wonderful it is that He's loved us, giving His flesh and His blood for us that we might live. Now notice what happens from the beginning of the Song of Solomon to the end of the Song of Solomon is what happens in the Christian life from the beginning to the end of the Christian life. What is happening? The woman is being transformed. At the beginning, she wants wine. At the end, she's the giver of wine. She's just like Solomon. At the beginning, she smells the fragrance. At the end, she is the fragrance. She's just like Solomon. She's been glorified. 
even her name, Shunamith, are the same radicals, the same con. It's the word Solomon, just in a feminine form. So we come together, and God says, you know, I invite you to my, I want to be with you. I love you. I delight in you. I want to feed you. And at the beginning, we say, oh, we're so grateful we are, we, who you are. We love you. We want to be with you. And over time, over time, over time, what happens? Well, here's Jesus over here. And here's his wife over here. And we've been transformed to be little Jesuses walking all around the earth doing what? Well, being what Jesus is. Light. Doing what? Well, being, doing what Jesus did. Helping people. Being little Jesus. Being what? Well, doing what Jesus did. <sighs> Breath comes out of our mouth because the Spirit lives within us. And out of our inmost being are flowing Spirit, live rivers of living water. And each week we come back right to this table and Jesus says, I want to be with you. I want to fill you up. I want you to know I love you. I want to know you're my garden. I'm growing you, you're bearing fruit. And what is the fruit we're talking about? Well, there's different kinds of fruit, obviously. We could talk about the fruits of the Spirit. But more importantly, when we start with the garden, and we end up in the heavenly city, the one that comes down out of heaven, what are we growing? We're growing up new Christians because... The kingdom is getting more and more and more and more leavened. What's that leaven? Well, it's the spirit. What's that wine? Well, it's the blood of Jesus who has the spirit in full measure. And he's called the spirit of Jesus Christ. And we drink that wine and symbolically picture it. Jesus shares his breath with us. And his breath is the breath of life. This table is amazing. This table is where a love declaration is made, a covenant is renewed week by week. And we pick up that bread, and we pick up that cup, and Jesus says, this is my memorial. I remember you. And what do we do? We proclaim, ah, oh, my life is based on his death, that's our proclamation until he comes. He gave me his flesh and he gave me his blood. Psalm 75 talks about that cup that Jesus drank, which made him real 
and stagger and fall down dead. But he rose again. And that cup, which was a cup of judgment, has turned into a cup of blessing for you and me. Let's stand together. Lord, the first thing I want to say is your word is just spectacular. I wish I understood it better. You are the finest writer, no one better. You're the best poet. You know how to tell a story. You know how to make everything connect together. And I thank you that you give us the opportunity to look into it and ponder it and to just grow a little bit in understanding it. And we thank you that you have selected this company here as your bride and you delight in us. Oh, it's true, we sin and you give us a little trouble to straighten us up but you delight in us. And oh, we are here to confess, we delight in you. We proclaim our dependence upon your death until you come. And so now we ask you to bless us at your table. In Jesus' name, amen.